Welcome to Unpleasant Movies Conversations, where we talk to creatives and academics whose work relates to the unpleasant in one way or another. Today I'm talking with Nikolai Lubecker, Professor of French and Film Studies at the University of Oxford and author of The Feel Bad Film. Before we start, I'd like to give out spoiler warnings for Dogville, which we will be talking about quite extensively. And keep in mind that the conversation was recorded via Zoom, so the sound quality is a little bit varied. Still, we hope you'll bear with us and enjoy the show. Hello, Nikolai. Hello, Thomas. Nice to be here. You wrote this really good book, The Feel Bad Film, a few years ago. But you focused a lot of other things. You're a professor of French, and you seem to have written a lot about literature and stuff. Tell me a little bit about your background. Yes, uh, that's correct. So, so I'm from Copenhagen, so I'm Danish. Um, oh, yeah. I studied comparative literature in Copenhagen, but spent most of my study years in France, in Paris. Uh, so I also have a degree from from France, uh, both a, okay. a kind of a master's and a PhD. And that was in French literature mostly. But my background is comparative literature. So. So yes, I've written about uh, different aspects of French uh, literature and, and the history of ideas as well. And then yeah. the book on the Feel Bad film, uh, which came out in 2015, was the first kind of monograph in the field of film studies. And then after that, I've, I've, I've edited a volume and I'm doing other projects on film. But I'm trying to keep up both the kind of the literary and the filmic interests that I have and do both of those. So that's the background. And I guess I came to film studies and um, to this particular project a bit by chance. One of the nice things that sometimes happens is that you have a brilliant graduate student who wants to do certain things and I had one okay. of those in Copenhagen when I was there so this was a master student who had heard me speak about Bataille the French thinker and, and someone who's kind of very much into feel bad experiences mm. and uh, he came to me with a project about Sulawski the Polish director and Grotowski yeah. and the relationship between bodies and transgression and things like that um, and we got to be good friends. He, his name was Tua Monkholm. He went on to be the programmer at Copenhagen Picks Festival. Oh, yeah. And he was a real film buff and, and, and introduced me to some of this corpus. So that's, I guess, one of the origins of the book project. Okay. And you started teaching film at some point. Yes. Uh, yes. So that was actually kind of the other aspect was that, yeah. So, so I went from Paris where I did my PhD back to Copenhagen. And that was the moment I met Tua. And then I went from Copenhagen to Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, got a job in Aberdeen and was hired initially kind of in the French program. But when I came to Aberdeen, a number of colleagues in film were leaving the program in film and they needed someone who could teach film. And I, I had done a little bit of film teaching before. I was very much a kind of into film. So, so when I came to Aberdeen, I ended up teaching quite a lot of film. So that was in 2005. And I guess I then came with a course. They asked me to prepare a course on contemporary French cinema. So I did that. Oh, yeah. But then I also did a course and a more traditional film history classes yeah. and was at that point teaching kind of classics, Godard and Bergman and other things like that. And, and started thinking about how these directors in the 60s and, and even I'd written on surrealism before and earlier directors, how they did transgression and then how some of the contemporary directors in the Feel Bad Corpus, how they did transgression. So some of the project comes from that kind of that clash between the contemporary and the more historical teaching I did. Oh, sounds very interesting. Yeah. It's nice how things can kind of randomly uh, manifest themselves. Uh, 
yeah, they, they do. And, and you got to be, uh, or I've always been open to that. I think a lot of things happen in, in institutional context. And, and if you change institutional context, as I've done a couple of times, that pushes you in, in new directions. So, or you have encounters at conferences or even kind of outside of academia and they, they will push you in other directions. Yeah. Okay, so you had this student that kind of sparked this interest in cinema that pushes the boundaries a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, you wrote some essays initially uh, before the book. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So that's how it usually works for me, at least. You write shorter pieces and you do conference presentations and they turn into shorter essays. And then some of these essays, sometimes you look at your own essays and you see, okay, there's actually a, an idea here that can carry me through kind of a longer mm -hmm. piece of writing. So I guess when I came to Aberdeen, one of the first I guess there were two pieces that eventually made, made it and didn't really make it into the Feel Bad book. But I, I wrote a conference presentation on The Idiots by Lars von Trier. And that was one of the first time I started kind of engaging with this. I'm, I, I'm not actually labeling that film a Feel Bad film. I'm, I'm using it in the book to say that it's slightly different from Feel Bad films. But at least that was my first sustained study of Lars von Trier. And then he does play a role in the book, but not so much with that particular film. And then another film that I gave a talk about and eventually wrote a piece about was a film by Claire Denis called I Can't Sleep, Je Pas Sommeil, an early film by Claire Denis, which also is very briefly mentioned in, in the book. But uh, yeah, it was those two pieces. They got me started on, on the project. Right. I came across your name through a book called The New Extremism in Cinema. You had a piece about Dogville. That was also an earlier essay that you... Yeah, so, so this is worked. a bit... I was cheating a little bit in a sense because the, the New Extremism Conference, which was a really kind of key moment for me because it was the first time I... I think it was the first time I presented on some of this material. That was a conference organized by Tina Kendall and Tonya Horak in yeah. Cambridge at the Anglia Ruskin University. I I actually gave a talk about the idiots so that was the talk I, I was referring to just a moment mm -hmm. ago but then when they wanted to publish a volume following that conference I had gotten more interested in Darkville so instead of giving them the, the manuscript that I had prepared for the talk I, I rewrote that piece and it became a piece about Darkville that's where it originated all right yeah so how did you end up with this term the feel bad film I mean it's it's obviously a reaction to the feel good film yeah. But like, personally, where did that come from? I actually don't remember. So I thought that these experiences were yeah, very much the opposite of the feel good movie. And uh, therefore, I thought that it sounded nice. I then discovered I can't kind of claim that I invented the term. There is someone else who's been writing, who was kind of using the term, and it's been used in different contexts before I uh, wrote about it. I think it's been used as something that was more or less self-explanatory. And, and mm. I then, I went with that word, and I also kind of tried to come up with a definition of what I meant by that term. Yeah, maybe I use it in a more precise sense than just the opposite of a feel-good movie. That I only later discovered that someone else had written with that term, so I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I guess it's a kind of wordplay that quickly kind of places the focus. It's easy to understand in a sense yeah, as yeah. an opposite to easy cinema. I don't know. Yeah, and that that's how it came to me as well. So then it was kind of a question of defining and refining it and, and, and seeing where that could take me. Yeah. You describe the concept as the emotional state of the spectator when the lights go on. That's kind of what indicates the feel bad element. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. 
I'm defining these films as films that are very much kind of appealing to our desire for catharsis or for release. So uh, in the first place, these films, they stimulate a certain desire for release and catharsis, which is the one that you will be offered by feel-good movies and mm. by many other movies. And then they go in and kind of uh, block that possibility of release. They go in and deadlock the catharsis, as I put it, or deadlock the desire for catharsis, and they don't satisfy. So you end up sitting there in the cinema when the lights go on, frustrated very often, <laughs> or bewildered, or in some ways not knowing what to do with it. Then there are, I guess there are certain films, the reason why I insist a little bit on that, that it has to be the immediate experience of the film is that there will be some of these films where they then stimulate you to think further about what kind of desire you had and why you had that desire and uh, eventually you will be able to resolve some of the emotional turmoil and understand why that experience might even be productive in some ways. But there are also some films where I have to say that they still kind of disturb and they still worry you a long time after and, and you aren't sure whether that work can actually be done. But I have a kind of a, a sympathy for those films too. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of an unsettling ambiguity as to the intentions or what the film wants to do, perhaps. And exactly. um, that's one of the things that strikes me as very interesting, that when you're placed in this position as a spectator, you're unsettled into a reaction. Definitely, yeah. And you simply have to work with analyzing your own emotions to some extent, but also there's an intellectual work that has to do with thinking through what it was these films were trying to convey and communicate. So I like that job. I mean, even if these are sometimes excruciating and painful experiences, I quite like the challenge of dealing with mm -hmm. them, which is a challenge that is both kind of emotional and, and intellectual, I think. Yeah, I agree. That's the interesting intersection where feelings and the thoughts, they kind of have to struggle a bit, yeah. often against one another as well. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the uh, idea of humanist spectatorship. I mean, these films, they've often uh, led to very strong reactions from critics and audiences. And they've often been accused of having like a disingenuous or destructive agenda. Yes. You try to kind of turn that around and try and look at how they potentially could be the very opposites. That's right, yeah. As probably everyone knows, they are provocative films. And Lars von Trier, for instance, is very often labeled anti-humanist and people have been very annoyed with him in different ways. Yeah, there's a lot of criticism of these films and there is an expectation. I think it's interesting also working in the field of literature and of film that there is, after all, still very much an expectation that when you go to the cinema, it's supposed to be pleasurable in the most kind of everyday-like sense of that word. Whereas uh, lots of authors and, and lots of literature literature has gone very far into these kind of unpleasant regions and I think that kind of probably still is more loud. No one is going to go back to, I don't know, Dostoevsky or some other kind of a canonical author and um, begin kind of worrying about the ethics of some of those explorations, whereas with the visual element that very often happens. So there is an expectation when I speak about humanist spectatorship. Before I wrote this book, I wrote a book about the reception of Hegel in French intellectual history. Yeah. And I wrote a little bit about what is called the dialectics of recognition, the, the idea that we must have conversation in such a way that we kind of confirm each, each other's desire for recognition. So there's a lot of good in that, and it's a complicated discussion. But I think that we should allow films to be disrespectful of us. We should allow them to be aggressive. We should allow them to be frustrated, and we should allow them to be all kinds of things that 
that we wouldn't allow in a conversation like one we're having right now. Mm, yeah. I think in the cinema room, other things should be allowed to happen because there is a potential in that experience and it can be productive. And sometimes it can also just be a way of exploring darker aspects of the human psyche. And we need a space for that. Yeah, I agree. I'm not so familiar with the history of humanism in literature directly, but you had some points I thought were quite interesting. You had this essay by Sartre called Why Write mm -hmm. that you refer to. In that, he said that art was best understood as a collaborative effort between the author and the reader or spectator as kind of a, a pact of generosity, a process where reader and writer work together to create the literature and themselves in a way. Yeah. And while that might initially kind of seem to work against this idea of deadlocking and very aggressive style of some of these filmmakers, it seems to me that this is exactly what they're tapping into from a slightly different point of view than yeah. he thought of perhaps. Yeah, I think that's very true. So I use Sartre in two sections of the book. I use him in the introduction to set up a kind of a certain idea about this pact of generosity. And that does seem extremely far from the experience of watching, let's say, Funny Games by Haneke. You don't feel yeah. like you are in a pact of generosity <laughs> at all. So then I return to Sartre at the end of the volume and I say that, yeah, perhaps there is something like that going on, nevertheless. And um, I think we have to say also Sartre was not someone who was afraid of, of literature that was complicated. So he's someone who is, for instance, speaking and writing about Céline yeah. and, and other provocative and very dark authors. Uh, so there can be yeah, a productive exchange. There can be something like a pact of generosity, even in those films that do not seem like they're doing that at all. Yeah, I'm not, as you very rightly say, I'm not going after Sartre too much. I think there are certain aspects that have to be criticized, but there is a reception of that tradition. And there are other thinkers who sometimes turn this idea of a pact of generosity and exchange of freedoms, as Sartre also writes about, uh, into something very, very banal, where art has to be productive in a, in a very limited and direct way. It has to be gentle. It has to be showing us a way forward and why would we want to confront films that perhaps do not direct us in some way? You have to come with something positive and things like that. So there is a reception of thinkers like Sartre that makes it very reductive what it is we can expect from art. I don't think Sartre was reductive in that way, but I, I think other thinkers have been. And I think there is a, yeah, that, that provokes very often uh, reactions about how these films are evil films almost, mm. or yeah, nihilistic, anti-humanist, bad films. Let's get rid of them. It's interesting that you mentioned Haneke because he has a very moral agenda, it yeah. seems to me. He focuses on the violence of violence mm -hmm. and doesn't allow us to, you know, pleasurably consume or relax into revenge ideas. He provokes an unpleasantness and unease in us that's very direct and often very focused on the media itself, how it influences us. It seems to be one of his, his main focus, at least in this early part of his career with Benny's video and Funny Games. Yeah. I think that's true. I think there is a very strong moralizing almost dimension in, in Heineken. And he would say, he would emphasize, for instance, in a film like Funny Games, that this is an anti-violence film where he's actually, yeah. as he says in many interviews, he's not showing violence. I think he cuts away when there, mm. there is violence. He shows the effects of violence uh, rather mm. than the actual acts of violence. 
I think, uh, nevertheless, uh, he's making a very a film that feels very violent. It's a paradoxical film in, in many ways. It's a film that is extremely unpleasant and extremely violent in a kind of an attempt to uh, criticize a culture of violence where violence is simply pleasure, fun, and uh, desensitization uh, in, in his view. But it's true that, that Haneke is a, is a moralist director. I think he's, I, I also say that gently, uh, I think he's done some fantastic films, but I think he's also very almost too keen to to explain and uh, frame them himself. He does it in such a, an interesting and intelligent manner that he, to some extent, perhaps even even does too much framing for us in his many interviews and commentaries. But uh, a film like Kashi, I think, is a fantastic uh, mm. is a fantastic film. Yeah, Very yeah it's amazing. Yeah, but it's an interesting point because he's one of the few of these extremist directors who's very explicit and he doesn't like von Trier is very playful about how he presents his films and someone like Takashi Mika for example he does such a varied amount of stuff that he doesn't necessarily feel like he identifies only with like the extreme cinema part but with Haneke it's such clearly an agenda and he is very interested in us as an audience to understand and to deal with the violence that he explores. Yeah, I agree with that. And of course, he should be allowed to speak about his films and, and uh, he should be allowed to do these uh, intelligent analysis himself. Yeah. But I do think, yeah, yeah, he's he's a, he's a very coherent and very intelligent filmmaker. I think that someone like Lars von Trier is a, a very sensitive and very interesting filmmaker. But yeah, it's true that for me, he doesn't come with the same kind of discourse, the same, what can we say, almost, yeah, he's less systematic than Haneke. And that just means that they make quite different films in, in my view. And, and that's obviously a good thing. Uh, that they, we get a lot of different things from these directors. But yeah, I spend more time on Fantria and the work than I do on Haneke. I think that there's been a lot written about Haneke and a lot of it has been very good. Uh, so I, I felt like, I also think that a lot of it has been written about Lars von Trier, but I felt like I had more to, to, to say about him than I had about um, Haneke. Yeah. Let's take a moment just to talk a, a bit closer about the idea of the catharsis. Does it originate in Brecht? No, it, it's a Greek term, of course, but yeah. he kind of criticizes catharsis for pacifying the spectator and, and then wants to break with that. Yeah. He calls it an opium for the masses, a witchcraft to be fought against. Yeah. It's quite strong words. And you also say that for Hollywood, the idea of a catharsis is a positive ideal of closure and, and release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a complicated word, actually, catharsis, because it, it means different things for different writers. And as you say, it's Greek originally, uh, it's in Aristotle, and he says very little about it. He uses it in his poetics and he uses it in politics, but he says very little about it. And it's been debated what it meant in his philosophy. And I then jump up to Brecht, who is arguing against catharsis. I think he's arguing, as you say, that the theater mustn't just be a place where you go to have some kind of emotional message and feel better afterwards. Mm. He's worried that we just kind of uh, throw ourselves into this experience and not think about what is happening. So there is an element of, yeah, let's resist that immersion and hold the spectator a little bit aside so so we can immerse ourselves perhaps differently, so we can uh, relate to what is being shown on the stage in a more critical way, so we can think about it more critically, whereas he associates kind of the cathartic experience with kind of pure emotion without any sort of reflection. This is in particular early Brecht. He's a more complicated mm. writer and he's not 
it makes him sound very austere this and and he's not at all he's a lot of fun and he's also inspired by boxing uh, matches and and he he is a popular art he wants to make so but there is kind of a a resistance towards this idea of kind of immersion and emotional investment and an emphasis on the necessity of relating to things on stage in an intellectual manner so he would be he would definitely and he was uh, kind of be critical of, of hollywood cinema and he would be critical of a lot of the hollywood cinema that we have today so he's one point of reference for this discussion and I, I do use him a bit another point of reference I use is Lenato yeah. the French surrealist playwright and thinker about theater and who goes a different route so he wants to engage the body of the spectator and thinks that if you really want us to think about things then we have to go through the body to the intellect and there are kind of a number of quotes I give where he's explaining that so he's he's very much for the immersive experience but also wants to kind of stimulate thought by going through the body but the cathartic for him is a more Greek Aristotelian probably thing where it would be a positive experience you can have an experience in the theater room that is uh, cleansing and purifying that's kind of opening up but it's opening up the bodies in ways that are are not conservative like perhaps the Hollywood film might be although you can also read Hollywood films in in interesting ways but um, he's opening up this the theater goer so he's almost shattering the the individual theater goer so it's a very radical idea about what is possible to do in theater as well i'm not as familiar with it at all what is it that he does what kind of tools does he use to enact this theater of cruelty yeah, so he would he would for instance put the actors among the crowd so he would do away with the stage in a sense if we talk about immersion then we are in the middle of the action he would also recommend a, a certain acting style where bodily gestures become as important as the word or the word mm-hmm. is brought back to the body so there's a special kind of diction that is more bodily than what we would usually have so yeah bring Bringing the body in and bringing the the spectator into the middle of the action, so things like that. In terms of film, he, he's known for writing scripts for films and, and and working on films and playing in films as well. So he plays in Dreyer in Gendarme. I didn't know that. That's <laughs> nice. As well, yeah. But I'm, I'm using him as an example of kind of someone mm. who is thinking at an aesthetics of uh, transgression and yeah. ex- an explosive aesthetic. And he's one example, and I'm also using Bataille in that regard, Georges Bataille, who's a contemporary, also kind of close to the surrealist movement, writer and thinker. Yeah, and you kind of combine uh, better breath than uh, I know theories a bit in looking at some of these extreme uh, cinema directors. They seem to kind of use influences from both where they often have a type of cinema that's very engaging, but they also withhold the catharsis, as you mentioned earlier. You're not allowed the relief of a happy ending or a resolution that's obvious or clear. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's particularly clear in the example. I use I use Arthur and Brecht mostly for the Darkville analysis. And I think in, yeah. in that case, it's a bit of kind of what, what Lars von Trier does is to produce, in my reading, kind of a, a machine almost, which works with kind of a push and pull system. So sometimes we're kind of sucked into the action and sometimes we're pushed back again. And that kind of interaction between immersion and distanciation will allow him to take us to the point where he wants to take us. And in my my reading what he really wants to bring out in this film is kind of a, a destructive desire in the spectator mm. so he wants to take us to the point where we feel like the protagonist of the film she should kill off the whole town 
And she does. So it becomes a piece of machinery that is meant to bring out a desire for revenge and destruction. And then I argue that once he's done that, because that is the cathartic experience in a sense, then he throws back an image at us that mocks us for having given into that desire. So then we're suddenly no longer in the position where we feel relieved. We feel bad about having felt relieved. So that's the way I read that film. Yeah, because she is a stranger. She comes to this small town or village and asks for shelter. Yes. And she initially gets protection, but then it starts to get abused more and more, leading to menial tasks and eventual sexual abuse. And turns out that the people that are hunting her is actually her father. And then she returns the abuse and has the village slaughtered, which, as you say, at the time feels very satisfactory. Of course, she does the more terrible thing and putting us as a spectator in that emotional state where we feel justified about killing these people is quite mischievous, I think. And you use this phrase, the inner bastard or the inner Schweinhund, because yeah. he uses he uses a dog in an interesting way. Perhaps you can... Uh, so we, we have to say something probably for those who haven't seen the film about the setup of the film. It's a film that is played out in just one single big hall. Originally, it was used to construct locomotives for trains. So it's a giant space and it's completely dark, the space. And we don't have a sense of any limits to this space, really. And then he's drawn on the floor of this uh, giant hall, chalk lines that delimits the houses, the church, the school, the street, etc. So it feels very alien and it feels very odd. And there are certain props, a few props in there. There might be a bed, for instance, or other things. But it's basically kind of like uh, looking at a drawing. And we are then invited to produce the images, in a sense, that goes with this landscape. So when the characters open a door, you hear a creaking door, but you can't see the door. They're just pretending to open a door and Mm. eventually he makes us produce these images so they become uh, more and more concrete and then as you outlined the plot is exactly what you said and what he does at the very end is to there's been a dog lying on the ground outside one of the houses which was obviously just a kind of a tracing of a dog so some chalk lines doing a dog and then he focuses the camera comes down from above and focuses zooms in on this dog and the dog then morphs out of the ground and becomes kind of a a rot that is uh, barking straight at the camera. So suddenly the materialization, he's kind of, we've been materializing the images, we've been producing the images, but then he's producing an image digitally and having that dog bite back at us. I read that as a reference to this concept of the inner bastard or the the swine dog, which is a kind of a standard expression in Danish. It was used a lot in the 80s and 90s when Denmark turned very, in certain aspects of Danish culture, turned very, in my view, very xenophobic. Mm. And and there was a criticism of that, obviously. And what was said was that these were politicians kind of appealing to our inner bastard. It's an expression that goes back to discussions in the 1930s uh, in Germany. Germany, where a socialist politician was criticizing Goebbels and the Nazis for appealing to the inner bastard. So that's the tradition. And you could say that the inner bastard is all those dark desires that we would rather not admit we have. And uh, in the case of Dogville, he brings those out and then throws them back at us so we can sit and think a little bit about why it was we thought that it was would be fantastic if Grace, as she's called, would kind of kill off the whole town. So that's an example of a feel-bad film. It's a film that shows you how manipulation and exhaustion and something very unpleasant can become an experience that is productive in many ways. I think you could have done a film about warning us against xenophobia and 
warning us against destructive desires. Yeah. That would have been one thing. It might have been well-meaning and it might also have been allowing us to say that, okay, I'm not like that. But he's creating a film where we come to realize that, okay, I'm like that too. So that's, a, that, that's something he can do with that form of manipulation. He should be allowed to do that. Yeah, and that's interesting. He often seems to be edging on that role as a provocateur where he sees these elements of Western culture that consider themselves ethical or of high moral value. And he has a skepticism towards that. Often it seems like a, a self-skepticism as well. Unlike Hanukkah, who protrudes more onto you the responsibility, Tria seems to me to be much more sort of self-skeptical and in a dialogue with his own inner bastard in a way and exploring that with us in a sense. He manipulates us as well, of course, but mm. as much as his public persona also illustrates that he's interested in these inner conflicts that we have and our identity as good people and challenging that. And that, that, I think that's very true for Lars von Trier. And I think that's one of the things that I like about this corpus is that it is revealing complexities in the human psyche that we get lost in. Uh, it's, the, the debates about these films can get very, very complicated, but those complications are almost in themselves a good thing. They allow us to explore aspects of the human psyche that we perhaps wouldn't go to with other kinds of films and sometimes perhaps would quite like to put them aside and pretend they don't exist. But I agree that Lars von Trier is someone who has the courage to do that. And it's something he seems to be doing with himself, struggling with those aspects in a productive way and transforming that into works of art. And you also talk about, as we touched upon earlier, that there's a kind of an asymmetrical uh, system of morals where, you know, what you should allow for in the cinema or in art is different from what we can uh, accept in real life. You refer to Claire Bishop who uh, says that sometimes art is best considered an experimental activity where ethical norms are different than what we hope to find outside the movie theatre. That's a very interesting way to put it, I think. Uh, yeah, this is a very good book uh, by the art historian Claire Bishop called Artificial Health, which is about kind of performative art practices. And yeah, I do believe very strongly that art is a form of experimental and experiential activity where you can do things that you probably wouldn't want to do outside kind of the artistic sphere. So I refer to Claire Bishop. There are other thinkers that are yeah thinking that the potential of art in that way. And another one who appears in the book is uh, Julia Christeva, who's also writing about how how art allows us to think of ourselves in more complicated ways. And she's writing about how it's not just art. We've had long traditions for doing this. And she's saying that, for instance, also something like religion has been, she's not a religious thinker, that whatever we feel about religion, she's talking about Christianity here, it has been engaging with complexities in the human psyche, for instance, through depictions of hell. And if we suddenly come to think of ourselves as yeah, a form of rational human beings who have nothing to do with hell, <laughs> then yeah, it is probably kind of an illusion or it's something we need to be uh, worrying a little bit about if we pretend that some of those darker aspects have nothing to do with us. Yeah, and that again is quite funny in terms of Dogwill because you have the other main character played by Paul Bettany, Tom or Thomas Edison, which is funnily his last name. He's kind of this um, teacher of morals and placed in kind of the Enlightenment era. He's trying to force that perspective on the other villages, uh, townspeople. 
and he becomes a hypocrite and a fool as Grace turns him down towards the end and he calls upon the gangsters, unknowing, of course, that it's her father and he suffers the consequences of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel that's Tria kind of indicating his feelings about that role that Paul Bettany's character yeah, takes. I agree. He is probably the most, uh, in some ways, the most pathetic character in, in the film and or the one that Tria has fun mocking. So a certain very reduced form of uh, or very uh, simplistic enlightenment subject who likes to say, let me illustrate. That's what he says all the time. And he's obviously talking. Edison also the inventor of the light bulb. Uh, so so mm-hmm. yeah, he comes yeah, with light and, and he comes with uh, good didactic intentions and he wants to teach the city how to behave ethically. And in the end, he's the one who cannot cope with the fact that she refuses him or doesn't want to engage with him sexually. And he's the one who kind of lashes out most violently and that eventually produce this explosive ending where everything ends in in killings and horror. So the book is in three different parts, or you have three different aspects of Feel Bad. It's the assaultive, which Dogville falls into neatly, and also you have unease and transgressive. Tell me a little bit about how they differentiate and, and how they function. Yeah. So we've been talking so far mostly about the assaulted. So the films we've been talking about, they fit in there. Yeah, in the chapter on unease or the section on unease, I'm interested in films that are less confrontational and they are kind of eerie, unpleasant. We don't really know what to do with them. We can't. So in an assaultive logic, you have a very clear sense of who am I and what am I being met with? Or it's a conflictual setup. Whereas in the unease section, we precisely don't really have a clear sense of my limits and what is the film trying to do to me. In that section, I am, for instance, looking at Gus Van Sant's Elephant, which is a film that is produced with a very specific aesthetic where most of the images are blurred and uh, our relation to the central characters is unclear and the narrative is kind of not linear. It's broken up in such a way that we have to piece it together and we're struggling to piece it together. So uh, there's a lot of uncertainty on various different levels. And at the same time, it's, it's a film about the high school killing that took place at Columbine High School in yeah, around 2000. I can't remember the exact year. So it's a film that goes into a very hot topic but doesn't really seem to satisfy our desire to map and judge and Mm. uh, move on so it complexifies that desire and eventually uh, so I argue that it's a film that because it doesn't allow us to judge as easily uh, it perhaps produces a kind of thinking about the way those social conflicts are usually orchestrated and how all these kind of something like the grammar of political conflicts and, and social conflicts it doesn't just accept it's not looking for a solution to find out who was responsible for the killings, for instance. It's more kind of uh, suspending that uh, question and, and asking us to think about how it would feel like to be there. What does it feel like to be a teenager in the U.S. today? And it's at the same time, I argue, showing us something about what it feels like, but also showing us that we probably can't really put ourselves in the shoes of these teenagers. So maybe we should be kind of a little bit more hesitant in moving in and judging at times. That's one example. But these are films that kind of suspend our possibility for judging. They unframe as the way in which we usually look at social conflicts, and they therefore encourage us to think about the whole, what can I say, the whole architecture of uh, these problematic political and social conflicts. That's very interesting. You use this term unframing. Yeah. 
It's a chapter that kind of, uh, so the logics here are, are less palpable and more difficult to pin down. So one of the things I tried to do in order to make my argument clearer is to, to kind of compare Gus Van Sant's film, which was something many critics have done before with Michael Moore's documentary, Bowling for Columbine. Yeah. So in that film, and it, this is not a value judgment, I think the films, they do different things and they should be allowed to do different things. But in that film, Michael Moore goes in and he tries to analyze how high school killings are produced. So who's responsible is basically the question. Yeah. And he comes up with an answer to that question, which has to do with the media landscape and the National Rifle Association and the way those two play together. So that's an analytic and clear analysis of a social problem where Gus Van Sant, he's not placing responsibility. He's not allowing us to judge. And what he's doing instead is kind of staying with the teenagers, which Michael Moore doesn't really do. He's not staying with the teenagers. He's not trying to say too much about what it feels like to be a teenager in the US. Mm -hmm. So they're doing different things. And I think sometimes making it difficult for us to pin down things is also a way of allowing for a reflection on social questions. So yeah, suspending judgment can be a good thing. Obviously, at some point, we have to judge and we have to respond, but not always too quickly. So that, there's that film. There are other films that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the film by Claire Denis, Je passe uh, I Can't Sleep. And there are other films. These are all films that are, or many of them are engaging with socio-political questions, but not offering a solution. And therefore, they've been frustrating spectators. And there's a lot of criticism where critics will say about, for instance, Elephant, that this film doesn't really offer anything. It doesn't allow us to move on. And that obviously creates a frustration. I hope that I can convince that not moving on is not always or not being allowed to move on can be a good thing as well and that's what i'm arguing in that chapter you also mentioned this french film innocence yeah. i forgot the director's name called lucille atzi alilovich so yeah it's <laughs> difficult to pronounce which is a very good a very interesting film it places us as an audience as well in a kind of um obscure landscape we're not really sure where we are in relation to what we're seeing even at the end it's kind of unclear to what degree this is a depiction of something real or more metaphorical and how things come together if it's some fantastical element or if it's a an allegory or, or well, it's kind of unclear it kind of creates the unease from just the relation directly to us as an audience. Uh, yes. I think that space is very interesting to yeah. explore. Yeah. Of all the films I wrote about in the book, this is probably the one that I found most difficult to write about, the most complex. And that's partly to do with the fact that it's difficult to pin down what is going on in the film. It's a film about a group of girls in a boarding school set in a forest. They're all girls and their teachers are women. And it's also a story of how they grow older and become aware of their bodies. And, and uh, yeah, they go from being pre-puberty to being kind of going through puberty and, and being let out into society. And there is a fantastic text. It's based on a text by Wiedekind, an author from the turn of the 20th century. It's called Minihaha or the Bodily Education of young girls. So that kind of mm. subtitle says something about the topic of the film. It's about the bodily education of young girls. Mm. Staying very close
shows with these girls and at the same time it was criticized when it came out it was criticized with kind of fetishizing the girls and almost criticized for being close to a form of pedophile gaze on these mm -hmm. girls and i think uh, that accusation is wrong but nevertheless one the film invites or is aware of at least um, so it becomes a very complicated space and in a sense i think she's also negotiating some very complicated questions about whether we are living in a culture where there's space to think about children as sexual beings which is uh, again a super difficult thing to write about <laughs> yeah. um, but obviously children are i think in, in my opinion sexual beings and uh, freud wrote about uh, very courageously at the beginning of uh, uh, at the same time as, as wiedekind was writing he was writing about children's sexuality and mm. was ostracized from certain environments in Vienna for doing this. And I think that topic is as provocative as it was a hundred years ago. So it's an extremely complicated film. I think there's also a feminist dimension in it. And um, it's an interesting film. I, I really recommend it. And she then went on to make another film that is also very complicated, which kind of responds very nicely to Innocence. It's called Evolution. And that's a film about boys in an isolated environment on an island being brought up by some women who are mysterious creatures that seem kind of fish-like but they are <laughs> uh, they pretend to be mothers and we don't really know if they're mothers she's a, she's an, an extremely interesting director who makes films that are very difficult to pin down but explores questions of, of a kind of gender and sexuality and bodily sensitivity mm. in ways that mainstream films do not allow themselves to do i think But I'm not sure that, I, as I said, it was the film that I found most difficult to write about. But um, it's a film that's definitely worth seeing. Those are the, some of the films I look at in this section on unease and kind of arguing that the state of unease can be productive too. And then, as you said, the last section is called transgression and it's slightly different. What I'm interested in there is this question of the status of transgression today and transgressive art, where I'm placing the contemporary films in relation to both interwar avant-garde art and also 1960s transgressive art. And the argument is that very often transgressive art is kind of meant to be liberating and emancipatory. And that has been the tradition in avant-garde culture in particular in the interwar period. And today we have transgressive artworks that do not come with a political vision or it's not clear that they are liberating. It's not clear what they are liberating towards or what becomes possible after the transgressions. That's kind of, again, a withholding of the cathartic. And that has been debated quite a lot. And that has been used to sideline this corpus of films. So there's a famous text or a very debated text by James Quant, a Canadian film critic. It's a really interesting text. And he's analyzing precisely how these contemporary, this is the, the extremism corpus, how these films are kind of wallowing in transgressions, but without offering anything positive. Then a lot of critics have come in and say, well, in fact, they are actually offering certain forms of positive political messages, whatever. So what I'm arguing is that I think he's in a sense right about the fact that nothing really positive or there isn't anything positive that emerges very clearly from a, a number of these films that I'm looking at. So I'm looking at 29 Palms by Bruno Dumont, for instance. But what I don't agree with in Quant's piece is that we should therefore condemn them because I think they are speaking from 
a position of sincerity and that they are sincerely frustrated with the fact that transgression doesn't anymore open towards a, let's say, political revolution or something like that. So I also label some of these films frustration films and desperation films. They are desperate to come with something, but they can't find something positive. And communicating the frustration about not being able to come up with that positivity is, I think, in itself kind of a valuable thing to do. So what are some examples of, like, say, traditional avant-garde transgressive films that do have a catharsis? What are their reference points initially? In Quant's article, I think he's right about that, some of the Godard films, Weekend, or some of the films from the 1960s. It was a different cultural situation, obviously, and um, the idea of revolutionizing the society or radically altering the society was very strong, and people had a view on how to do it. So we are kind of around 1968, and filmmakers, are making transgressive art and they are seeing those transgressive artworks as part of a political project about reforming society and changing uh, social structures. And in the 30s as well, if you go back to surrealist art or to kind of the historical avant-garde, there were also uh, ideas about, especially kind of before it became a pre-war period, so kind of before 1934 maybe, there were ideas about kind of how the revolutionary art would bring down a bourgeois society and perhaps Mm. allow for a, a market or revolutionary left-wing society to be put in place. So what I'm thinking around these films in 2005, let's say, uh, is that the political vision is difficult. We don't perhaps have the same revolutionary optimism and there isn't perhaps these directors are also often they're working in a more solitary fashion. They're not grouped as, for instance, the surrealists were grouped. They don't have that, even if Quant kind of coins this phrase, a new French extremity, these are not directors working together necessarily. I'm not saying they're completely isolated. They have friends and context in which they are part. But I think they are perhaps the symptoms of the fact that the revolutionary political project is difficult to articulate. And it's difficult to see how these artistic transgressive experiences will bring about a new society. I argue that a number of these films, they are, first of all, kind of communicating a desire for that and a frustrated desire for that, rather than actually saying that we can blow our way out of a bourgeois society. But there are differences. There are certain films which I think have that more positive vision of the transgressive. And there are certain films that do not tie the transgressive to kind of a liberating experience. So that's why I said initially that Las Fontrias, The Idiot, isn't really a feel-bad film for me because it is a film where at the end of the film, the key character does transgress. And in that experience, she comes to have a positive experience that expands her personality and her, perhaps it's not a political project, but it's a film that believes in the potential of transgression. Right. Some of these directors, they are very clearly communicating the, the ways in which transgressive experience will renew our subjectivities, for instance. Uh, I think Catherine Breyer is another director that I would say is perhaps less pessimistic about the transgressive. And it also varies within the various directors' corpus. So someone like Bruno Dumont has made a lot of films with kind of um, spiritual endings and kind of almost like a sacrifice logic where you kind of go through a sacrifice and therefore connect to some form of transcendence. So there's a kind of a positivity in those films, whereas I think that 29 Palms doesn't have that dimension. I think it's a very bleak and very depressed and frustrated film. And I agree with Quant in that respect. But I also think that uh, 
communicating that uh, desperation is a good thing. Yeah, it has a value in itself. Yeah. And in a sense, maybe that that is, uh, I mean, I can't, uh, there are lots of things wrong with society and we should try to change them in different ways. But I can relate to the fact that it's difficult to see how to do it. <laughs> so, so if he's communicating a certain frustration about that political dead end, then uh, yeah. That might be the first step. There's a, I have a quote by Frederick Jameson, a, a big literary critic from the US that I came across in a book by Stephen Shibiro. And he says that sometimes when there isn't any way out, rattling the bars as you do, would do in a prison is in itself a, a good thing to do. So I, I think of these films as rattling the bars. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> way to put it. Another one of the films that you talk about is Crash Hampers by Harmony Corinne, which is kind of a bleak and meandering piece about these three masked, I don't know, kind of a slackers or they're just, they're just hanging out at night, doing some random acts of violence and vandalism, seemingly not intoxicated in a, a weird space. It's difficult to place what's going on with them. Their actions are quite abhorrent at times and quite funny at others. Mm. It's kind of like a, a subversive form of jackass. Yeah, it's a very odd film. And I, I guess uh, so. this is a low-budget film, real low-budget film. Uh, it would be very difficult to pitch the idea to any producers. Uh, <laughs> so it is a film about yeah, masked individuals that are going around humping trash cans. That's why it's called uh, Trash Hampers and, and engaging in all these kinds of destructive uh, actions. And it's true that it, it's comedy and it's unpleasant and it's also... It's infantile. What's the purpose of this? Why? It's also boring at times. You can't help sitting there. If you sit and, I don't know what your experience of it was, but if you sit and watch it for an hour and a half, you do think a little bit, why am I watching this? And that's not a bad question to have sometimes. And if you're struggling to answer it, that can also be an interesting thing to keep plucking at and, and trying to deal with. But it's an interesting film also because I think it is thinking about avant-garde art and transgressive practices. It refers quite clearly to different forms of Dadaist art or um, yeah. historical avant-garde and also more recent forms of avant-garde art. And again, you feel like there's nothing coming of this. There's nothing very positive, but it's making fun of it in a way. It's not a frustrated film, I think. And it has moments, real moments of beauty as well. It's a very lo-fi aesthetic. It's kind of a video VHS-like uh, aesthetic. Kind of a night vision uh, style, often filmed in the dark. Exactly, yeah. And some of the images are just uh, stunning beautiful so you feel bad and you also feel fascinated i think or i did by the film but um, i bring it into this discussion of whether transgressive art practices i think he's he's slightly mocking also those of us who would like to tie transgression to a kind of a progressive agenda so i read it in that context of negotiating a relationship to earlier forms of avant-garde art what did you make of it i'm curious it is tiresome to watch. I really liked it, particularly after I'd watched it, yeah. <laughs> in a sense. It's the kind of film that I prefer not to watch at home. Mm -hmm. That's where I watched it, but I would have preferred to watch it at the Cinematheque or Film Club or something, because that more clearly dictates the framework for how you watch it. Well, you're at home, it's easy to get distracted. And if you get bored, you're much more tempted to turn the other way and, and do something else, yeah. which I think is a challenge some of these films might have. Because if you engage with boredom, which is an interesting and, and valuable thing to do, I think, quite challenging <laughs> for us as an audience. But it's the kind of thing that if you're watching it on Netflix or whatever, it very quickly tempts us to switch off. But in the cinema, you're kind of locked in more easily. There's something more aggressive about standing up and leaving the cinema. 
that is an aspect that is interesting the kind of the the, the viewing context of these uh, films yeah those different viewing contexts they matter hugely it was interesting with trash humbers that initially harmony corinne said that he was kind of tempted to either kind of make these vhs cassettes with the film and just leave them around yeah, yeah, yeah. Dumps yeah. And people would <laughs> go and find them and think what is this so that's a that's a real reflection on the film itself as a trash product and another mm. option he was thinking about was to upload it to the web without any uh, signature or anything and then people would browse their way to it in random ways and just be confronted with these odd images yeah i definitely think it could have worked like that as uh, one of these creepy weird phenomenas of the internet that's kind of mysterious and you're not sure to what degree it's fictional or enacted or um, yeah kind of has that sense of some some of these early internet phenomena that were you know difficult to pinpoint so. I think I, I would probably never come across it then but <laughs> I think it's that's the problem yeah yeah, yeah. finding it is very much up to coincidence so unless it's distributed you have any upcoming projects are you working on a monograph or yeah i've started to work on a project which is quite different it's a project about documentary filmmaking dealing with political violence so some of those films i really feel bad that they are engaging with real life events and i'm doing that with a colleague in london called daniel rugel also some more experimental films in there this is a project that i've been working on yeah it's, it's a recent project just for a year or so i'm doing literature as well so i, I just finished actually a manuscript for a book about late 19th century French poetry, Baudelaire, Verlaine, Mallarmé, poets like that. So late 19th century and mid 19th century and contemporary theory. So a bit of different things. On this podcast, we like to ask our guests or participants to um, come with a bit of a recommendation at the end of some other type of unpleasant work or something that's been of interest or influence. Uh, so I was wondering if you have something to recommend for us. I have two suggestions. One was a film by a Russian artist called uh, Monkey Ostrich Grave. It's a curious film. He's called Oleg Mavromati and it's, it's kind of streamable on, on Vimeo. And it's an interesting film, which is a little bit like a vlog and reenacting something that a vlogger recorded. So it's a reenactment. It's, it's got a fictional dimension. At the same time, it is incorporating footage from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And some of that footage is really very in your face, unpleasant. It's a very unpleasant viewing experience, but really quite interesting. And it's of the films that I'm writing about in the book, it probably comes closer to how many Corinne than it does to many of the others in its very low budget aesthetic. So Monkey Ostrich Grave, I think, was, was really interesting. It was something I was introduced to through some graduate students in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I thought that was a, a fascinating film to think about. Another thing I've been kind of confused about recently in ways that I, I think are interesting is um, looking into this text by Marguerite Duras, a French author from yeah, 1985. It's a very short text. It's four or five pages. It was published in mm -hmm. a newspaper, a big French newspaper, and it's called Sublime Necessarily sublime Christine V. And it's a text about one of the most famous uh, murder cases in France in the late 20th century. A four-year-old boy who was murdered It's called Grégory. And it's a case that has never been solved and it's recently been reopened and we don't really know what happens. But the text by Duras is bewildering and uh, unpleasant in certain ways and also a really great piece of writing which is part of the disturbing element because she goes in and she imagines that the 
the mother killed this boy. And the text is published just a day after the mother has been released from prison because she was accused in this case. Duras' text comes out and she's imagining from the perspective of the mother and she's uh, arguing that the mother is a hero who has been carrying the cross of how men are treating women. So there's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of debate about whether she wanted it published or not or whether it mm. was in fact a text that was a uh, a softened version of an earlier version that she had sent to the, the newspaper, etc. So it's called Sublime, Necessarily Sublime, uh, Christine V. And it, it's easily found if you go online. Was it released posthumously after she died? Uh, after Duras died? No, no, it was, uh. it was released in the newspaper right uh. as the whole kind of affair mm. was at its most intense. So that's mm. part of the confusion that the text creates. She actually kind of interferes in legal matters almost, like everyone did, because everyone was imagining what was going on. It was a case that mm. was in the media. But going in and imagining from the perspective of the mother and imagining that she's guilty and imagining that that guilt is in fact part of what makes her sublime is such a provocative gesture and a confusing gesture. So there's a lot of complexity to think about. Yeah, that does sound very interesting. I look forward to reading that. Yeah. And this film as well, uh, it's a shorter film or is it a feature? No, it's actually quite long and it feels extremely long. <laughs> I would imagine it's around 100 minutes. Well, thanks for that. Those seem very interesting. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. The music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Sverre Skarning. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. And that's it for now. So bye-bye.